Hey, it's Bao and this is Coffee with Bao. This is a series where I chat with people who are doing great stuff in business, music, entertainment, pop culture, and more. And specifically, I like to focus on the topics of their cultural identity, their creative process, and their personal growth. And since this is an early episode, I'd really love your feedback on what's working and what needs work. So contact me at coffeewithbao.com or leave a comment wherever you're viewing this. Okay, you ready to meet our guest today? Today I'm hanging out with a fellow Vietnamese refugee. He's a comic book artist, illustrator, author, and a dedicated chicken dad. <laughs> He's got a new graphic novel called The Magic Fish, published by Random House Graphic. So here is my very talented new friend, Trung Le Nguyen. Hey Trung. <laughs> Hi Bao, how's it going? It's going very well. I really appreciate you making time to have this conversation with me. And I heard that in Minnesota, where you're calling in from, is like 30 degrees Fahrenheit. And I want to know how the heck do you live? <laughs> I, I personally enjoy it quite a lot. I like the cold. <laughs> Man, that's crazy coming from a Southeast Asian. <laughs> um, so both of us have something in common, which is that we spent a little time in a refugee camp in the Philippines. I wasn't born there, but I read that you actually were born there before coming to the U.S. Can you tell us a little bit about how your family was able to come to the U.S. and why you ended up in Minnesota? Sure, yeah. I don't know too many of the specifics, but I know that I was born in uh, kind of around Palawan in the Philippines in a refugee camp. And my parents were boat people who immigrated in the 80s. Uh, I was born in the Philippines, and then we, I think, got uh, a green card lottery. I think we won a green card lottery, and our sponsors lived in Minnesota, and so they moved here. Every time I hear about anybody's journey from Vietnam to the U.S., I'm like, wow, you guys went through so much. Um, you know, looking through your work, your new book, I realized that language is such a huge part of you and your work as well. And um, I was wondering, like, how, what were some things that your family did to learn English, but also preserve Vietnamese as you were growing up? Um, a lot of it was through book reading. My parents uh, somehow got a bunch of Vietnamese language books for me, and they were kind of instructional books for children that they mm. would use in classrooms. And so um, we would read Vietnamese that way. Um, I also wound up listening to a lot of like cassette tape recordings of like Vietnamese Catholic choir music for some reason <laughs> as a kid. But at home, I think we we spoke almost exclusively Vietnamese until I was in middle school. And then we started speaking kind of a combination. That's interesting. I think we have a really similar um, relationship with the Vietnamese language because, you know, I learned Vietnamese or I learned English from like Cheerios commercials and like G.I. Joe and stuff. But we always spoke Vietnamese at home, and I, I'm super grateful for that because now I can kind of f feel like uh, I have at least the ability to go to Vietnam and talk to people and um, just kind of remember where my roots are. This is something I wanted to ask you about because you go by Trung, and recently in my 30s I've been feeling a lot more comfortable about introducing myself as Bao with the Vietnamese accent. Mm -hmm. and. I'm curious about your experience with like the, the phonetics, the pronunciation of your name and just kind of simplifying it so that, you know, conversations go easier. Oh, sure. Yeah. So uh, the Midwest is fairly homogenous in a lot of spaces. And my parents sent me and my little brother to parochial school. So we went to spaces that were predominantly very, very white. And so a lot of the ways that we kind of interfaced with people were kind of to sort of make sure that our 
names were kind of more accessible. And so I anglicize my name all of the time. And I find that my name is awkward for English speakers to say. So my full name is Nguyen Le Trung. Um, my married name is now Trung Lee Kapeking Nguyen. Um, and so that's very, it's a mouthful. And I, <laughs> totally. I find that like whenever I, I ask people to pronounce my name like as it is in Vietnamese, they can't say it. They're like, how do you make those sounds? And it's a monosyllabic language. So it's really hard to just get people to be like, you move your mouth like this. <laughs> so my Vietnamese name is Trung. But I ask people to call me Trung because it's just like, oh, I, I can't deal with you butchering my name all the time. Yeah, I think at some point it's it's a lot more about just streamlining the interaction because it could be such a distraction to like try to correct people and, and teach people on the spot. So in Minnesota, you were born and raised there. You went to uh, school for art. and um, Oh, I did not, actually. I did not go to art school. Oh, really? I did study studio art. I studied oil painting, but I went to a liberal arts university. Uh, I was like trying to do the responsible thing and not go to art school because they wouldn't give me a scholarship. So I just went with the place that gave me the most money to go there. <laughs> I see. I got it. Um, what did your parents think about you pursuing the arts, uh, you know, as a first generation immigrant? That's not super common. Well, I mean, it was a compromise because they wanted me to do something really practical. And I was like, well, I only like the humanities. I don't like the sciences and I don't like anything especially practical. And so I convinced them that, you know, if I at least, you know, got really good grades and was a really good writer, I could become an art historian. And so I majored in studio art and then I minored in art history when I was in college. So... Yeah. That definitely came on, in handy, huh? All that yeah, writing and history and stuff. Just from reading your book, uh, it's just so intelligent and so well expertly crafted. You can tell it was done by an artist who has a lot of experience writing as well. So we'll yeah, talk about you. your book in a second, but man, <laughs> I'm just so stoked on it. So I keep like mentioning it. Um, was comics something you actively pursued or did that just kind of fall in your lap after school? Oh man, that fell into my lap <laughs> because I, I, I grew up reading a lot of comics. I've always loved comics as a kid and uh, I, you know, drew comics off and on when I was in middle school and high school, but I didn't really think of it as like a job that you could have. It was not anywhere on my radar. I just kept making it kind of as a hobby and I thought it would do more practical things and have an adult job. And then when I graduated, I kind of like fell into comics on accident, mostly because like I was on track to pursue art history and do like, you know, I wanted to work in galleries and museums and I wanted to do that kind of eggheaded stuff. Uh, and so I got an internship at the Minnesota Historical Society in the summer of 2011. But the government shut down that summer, too, um, due to some kind of like budgetary issues that they couldn't compromise on. And so the government shut down. I was an intern, so I was non-essential personnel and I lost my internship. So I was like, OK, well, that <laughs> that window has closed for me. I have to find other things to do. So I just kept making comics and putting them on the Internet. And eventually somebody noticed. Yeah, it's so great. Uh, you've had some work in projects for like Boom Studios, DC Comics, Image Comics. These are really great names. Um, and there was like a little bit of a hustle until you got this book. And um, later on in the conversation, I'd love to like find out a little bit more about that hustle, you know, if you yeah, sure. of, of hustle. And then after doing all this, you get an agent and this book deal, which must have you know, changed your life. I'm curious if you could give the audience like a little elevator pitch of The Magic Fish, your new graphic novel. Sure. Okay. So The Magic Fish is a story about a young boy and his mother. 
um, who are Vietnamese American immigrants, and they are trying to navigate American life. And the boy, his name is Tien, and he is discovering that he's gay and he's trying to come out to his mother, but he's having a little bit of trouble navigating the language around it and trying to figure out when is an appropriate time to tell his mother who is going through a lot of her own personal issues as well. And the ways that they go about can like kind of conveying that they care about each other and are listening to each other, even though they don't speak the same language all the time is through reading fairy tales to each other. And so it's a story within a story structure. And there are three different fairy tales that are sort of compared. That's awesome. I'm going to show the audience an image of your book. You guys, I cried like five times reading this thing. <laughs> <laughs> Trung Ling Nguyen's book is called the Magic Fish. It came out in October, published by Random House Graphic, and it's available everywhere you find books and ebooks. Recently, the New York Public Library put The Magic Fish on its best books of 2020. And um, you can find Trung and his other projects at trungles.com. That's T R U N G L E S.com. Trung, uh, seriously, I. <laughs> it's like supposed to be a kid's book, right? And um, it's just. The concepts in there are, you can tell that you're not taking children's ability to grasp tough concepts for granted. And I really like reading that. I really appreciated it. And it's just like a regular, really great story that just happens to be about a young person. Is that something that you've always been kind of uh, working in, like for younger audiences? I think so. I think that's just a part of my storytelling sensibilities. The market for it is young adults. So technically the age range is like your, your older teenagers and your early 20s is where, you know, the book is being marketed before young adults uh, became like a, a, an age range that you could aim uh, for. Um, uh -huh. Like for publishers, I grew up reading like a lot of like young readers books that had just a lot of content in it that may not have been I don't want to say not appropriate because it, it, it was appropriate for my age range, but it's not stuff that like is sellable now, I think. And so I most of my storytelling comes from a space of like, I think kids can handle a lot of these kind of difficult topics and kind of difficult conversations. And so the main character is a, a middle schooler. He's 13 and his mother is, you know, in her mid 30s. And so my the age range of the, the book is somewhere in, in between those two. But it's, you know, I, I didn't think that hard about like what would be appropriate for children just because I think kids can handle quite a lot of things and with a little bit of guidance, they should be able to suss out quite a lot of the, the content of the book. Absolutely, and I'm so glad this book exists the way it is. Um, it's beautiful, I love it. <laughs> it's hard for me to finish a book because I have like the, the dumbest attention span, but um, I flew through this book and I went through like this emotional and intellectual journey that was just absolutely beautiful. and. Thank you for creating it. Yeah, thank you. I'm so happy you enjoyed it. I'm, I'm always pleased when people tell me they liked it. How did you manage to get this book deal? Uh, well, I was kind of doing a bunch of kind of separate art projects and I had some things kind of on the back burner and I felt like I was ready to do a long form project and I started... Um, I put together a pitch document and I started talking to some agents to see uh, if they would be willing to represent me. And um, after I pitched to an agent, I found one. Kate McKean from Morheim is really awesome. And she was like, OK, so this is what goes into a pitch document. These are the things that you need that editors will be looking for. And so I put together something that kind of resembles an animation pitch. It has, you know, like a nice cover letter and contact information. 
but then it also has some sample art and some sample pages in it as well as uh, an outline. And the thing about graphic novels is you have to pitch them a little bit differently and they don't have to be done. If you're like a prose author, you needed to have a finished product. You need to have a book completely done. And by the time it's sold, the editor kind of just goes through it and then you go through rewrites. So you have to have a like a whole manuscript completely done. And graphic novelists don't have to do that because it's quite labor intensive to go through that. So we uh, so I put together the pitch document and then we shopped it around to some publishers and they put in a few bids and then we just went with the publisher that felt like the most appropriate for the project and also gave me the you know the most amount of money for it. I see. Uh, that's really great. How long was that pitching period? I started thinking about talking to agents in March, and then I think I got my agent in April, and then by May the book had sold. So it was pretty this year. Fast. Uh, no, in twenty, I think it was twenty eighteen. This year, t- <laughs> this book took like a year and a half to actually finish, and then it was finally published this year. But got I worked it. on it all through twenty nineteen. Uh, were you kind of sh- surprised that this subject matter wasn't shot down immediately by some of these publishers? Long-form comic books and uh, graphic novels have always been kind of envelope pushers. Like, I think there are a lot of really great works that have been put out there already that have covered a a wide range of topics. And a lot of the editors that are working in and around comics and children's books are very kind of forward-thinking. And so it was never an issue for me at all, like from the beginning. And so it was something that my agent was really enthusiastic about. It was something that all of the editors that we talked to were really enthusiastic about. So I got no pushback for the content whatsoever. And they really advocated for me to, you know, tell the story in my most authentic voice and to include whatever issues that I felt important. So I was really well supported throughout the entire, the entire project. That's incredible. I'm so glad that these things are happening and, and, voices like yours or or stories like yours are getting told because um it's so good it's so needed and it's just such a different perspective than so much that's out there so for me as a vietnamese immigrant the book has a couple of like remarkable elements that i wanted to ask you about Mm -hmm. one is the main character's name is dean and um for those who don't speak vietnamese (laughs) i dean can translate to like greatness or notoriety but another meaning of the word could be language or voice. And I'm curious, was that something you set out to do deliberately in the beginning? And have any other people called that detail out? Yeah, I, I, that it's a homonym for a voice is something that I definitely wanted to include in there because there are a lot of queer analogs between The Little Mermaid and immigrant narratives as well. And so the notion of a voice being something that you either have or you lose is ah. important. And so that so the, I can I name the character that way. And I was also kind of interested in like just Vietnamese as a monosyllabic language with a lot of diacritical marks. So uh, what happens when you flatten it or you change the marks and make it into totally different words is completely lost on an English speaking audience. But um, I learned through like either typos or like mistakes or mistranslations that, you know, when people are writing about my book, they would spell the main character's names differently. And so at times he would be like, it would be Thien, it would be fairy. And then sometimes it would be correct. It would be Thien, it would be um, the name. And sometimes it would mean the voice. And so it was just kind of a strange and interesting thing where I was like, okay, if I named my character this, all of the possible ways that it could be mistranslated might still actually kind of gel. Yeah, it's so cool because it's like a little Easter egg, but like a fairly obvious Easter egg for for Vietnamese speakers versus non-Vietnamese speakers. So I thought that was really cool. 
The second thing that I caught that was really interesting was that you use these sub-stories based on Western and Eastern fairy tales in order to propel the narrative of your story about Thien. And there's so many references to like old stories and stuff. And I was wondering what that research process was like to make sure that you're balancing, you know, accuracy to these old stories, but also to help propel your own agenda. I mean, I think especially within comic books, if you're telling any story visually, there's an element of research that I think a lot of people kind of take for granted if you're just telling a story by text. And the visual research is sometimes the most difficult, but it's also the space that has a lot of flexibility because, you know, there aren't, like, you, you can't exactly, um, you know, copy an image. And I mean, like, you, you can sort of now, but it's difficult to, like, use keywords in order to search for images um, based on an image that you saw. You have to identify where that image came from and figure out how to talk about it in a way that would grant you kind of deeper access into more of the image's story. And so the visual research was really difficult for me, actually, because it was multilingual as well. And so um, the three fairy tales are told through the perspective of three different characters. And one of the things that I prioritized in this book was figuring out what a person's imagination looks like, because everyone comes through, goes through the world with a totally different set of experiences. We watch different films, we, you know, see, we read different books, we see different things. And so we have different points of access for images. And so the first story being a Western fairy tale told through the lens of a 13 year old, I did a lot of research into why do princess dresses look the way that they do in the American popular imagination. And, you know, I had to learn about like what happened post-war after World War II and how that affected the way that clothing was made and ready-to-wear clothing was made and what that meant for couture houses and how uh, different silhouettes changed based on the amount of available fabric there was now that you know it was no longer being rationed for the war effort and so there was a lot of that going into there and kind of picking apart the disnified version of what a princess is and figuring <laughs> yeah, out how totally. to communicate that um, was really like really rewarding I think the most challenging part for me though was figuring out how to tell the Vietnamese Cinderella, how to tell Tham Gam um, visually, because a lot of that, uh, a lot of the visual aspects of that are kind of like very, very ancient. And I realized that I didn't have any access to um, information about what really old Vietnamese clothing looked like. And the history of Vietnam as a country is very muddled as well. There are a lot of different periods of occupying forces and a lot of different cultural influences coming in and out. And so Vietnamese as a culture is just a very, um, it's a bit of an amalgamation to begin with. And so finding the source material was really difficult for me. And so that's kind of why I wound up telling the story through the lens of like an older woman who is related to um, to Thien it's you know his his great aunt and so she tells the story and she's a woman who would have grown up uh in the 1930s and 40s and 50s in vietnam and so i tried to imagine what her visual imagination looked like and so i ended up learning a lot about the relationship between vietnam and france and how that affected the way that the aoyai is cut and how that came to be the national dress it's just an incredibly like it's such a specific and very deep rabbit hole to run down into but it was such such a rewarding process to look into that and figure stuff out about where I came from. Yeah, absolutely. And it totally, um, it, it adds so much to your book that, you know, the way that you drew everything and you can tell that there's a deep understanding of this stuff. I actually feel like you could probably go and give a lecture <laughs> on that, that research that you did for this book. <laughs> In the book, I have a, a, a page where it really clicked to me because 
You use color to separate the various stories in the book, the sub stories.、Mm-hmm. And each story is separated by a different color with various tones. And I, I wish I could show a better version of this book, but on page 28, it's kind of the page where it finally clicked with me that you can. Intercut all of these various stories into each other, not even like big chunks at a time, but like tiny scenes as well. I, I guess that's a long, long setup to kind of just ask you why and how you chose to do color like that because it's, it's a unique approach and it worked out so well.、Uh, yeah, that was, it was mostly a practical consideration. I, I wanted readers to be able to figure out which story universe they were in. Like, I wanted to have visual cues for the past and imaginary stories and the present, like real life,、um, real time in the, in the book. And so that was mostly that. And I wanted to be able to intercut each of the pages with segments. Of all three of those things, because I needed to convey that the past is something that you carry with you in your present, and your imagination is something that you carry with you in your present as well. And so sometimes all of those moments kind of happen and converge on the same page, which I thought was really fun. Yeah, it's so smart and it's executed so well. And、um, I just want to show that image again so you guys can see the Magic Fish book cover by、uh, Trung Le Nguyen, and you can find it. At trungles.com. Let's take a little break. Hey, friends. Not sure if you know this, but I serve on the board of a nonprofit called the Slants Foundation. We're a volunteer driven organization that provides resources, scholarships, and mentorship to Asian American creatives looking to incorporate activism into their art. We also produce events that feature these talented creators. Our last virtual concert helped over 500 people register to vote for the very first time. You can learn about and support the Slants Foundation by visiting theslants.org. Thanks, and see you soon. Let's get back to the show. I wanted to spend most of this conversation talking about you as a human being <laughs> <laughs> because I know your book is going to get covered by like, a ton of other、uh, media. And this is a great chance for me to just learn more about you as a person. You said that when, you tell a, when someone tells a story, it's a little bit like they're telling on themselves a little bit because every story has a part of you in it, right? Like your interpretation of a story.、Um, your book is about a young boy who has to tell his parents that he's gay. And, you know, immediately that makes me want to understand or want to find out a little more about your conversation with your parents about that topic. Sure.、Uh, that was an accident. <laughs>、um, I mean, the, the, I, I kind of came out to my parents by accident. I was in high school. I was about 16 or 17 years old. I had written an essay for, I think, my religion class of all things, because I went to Catholic school. And my teacher really liked my kind of like reflection about、um, kind of my sexual orientation and the ways that I kind of navigate my school based on, you know, how I. Understand other people's ideologies. And I was, you know, I was young. And so I had like, a, it was a pretty watered down essay, I think. But then, you know, he gave me an A because he was like, well, this was very thoughtful. And my mom saw it around the house and she was like, well, this must have been a really good read because it got a really high mark. <laughs> and so she read it. And we wound up having a conversation about it、uh, later that night. And I think. My parents' ideology for me is very difficult to kind of parse out because they don't have an American political context and they kind of fall under a lot of like the,、um, like any group, any ethnic group in the United States that kind of、um, had to 
either escape or move away because of uh, kind of falling out from the Cold War and communism all kind of have a similar fealty to the American right wing a little bit. And so it was difficult Mm. for me to figure out how my parents were going to feel about my sexual orientation because they don't have a strong cultural connection to like American conservatism, but they do have a lot of like, I guess, ideological markers that they look for, but culturally they're not very connected to it at all. And so I couldn't figure out what my parents were going to say about it. And so I just thought I would avoid it until after college. And then I would just, you know, live my own life and not have to worry about it quite as much because they can't do anything. But they actually received it very well. Their priorities were all very practical um, because my mom also wasn't sure what my dad was going to say. And my dad is like, he's kind of an action hero. Like he was a prize fighter when he was in Vietnam and he's like a very tough, like kind of man's man. And so what wound up happening after I told my mom was, you know, she was like, well, we should tell your dad now because he does deserve to know if I know and I'm not going to keep a secret from him. So my dad is like on his way home and I think she sends him a text message like, hey, we need to have a conversation about our kids. And that made me super nervous. And I was like, oh, my God, I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what they're going to say. But I felt like, okay, because my mom was going to be there and my little brother caught wind of it. And he was like, hey, I'm going to sit in on this conversation, too, just in case it goes badly. And I was like, I was very heartened by that. Um, And my dad came home and we sat him down and we had a conversation about it. And he didn't quite actually understand what we were talking about because, you know, we don't share a lot of like vocabulary between English and Vietnamese. And I know that there are a lot of new terms and words in Vietnamese to describe queerness now. But they didn't grow up with any of them, and so they didn't know how to interface with it. And so we had to kind of walk him through and explain what that meant. And his first reaction was fear, because he realized that like he'd sent me to parochial school, and he had like a lot like this particular conception of like what it meant to be a man in the world. And he already knew that like, okay, like I'm an Asian person, I'm an immigrant, like I already have a lot of things that kind of set me apart from my peers. And this additional thing, like I think he understood that it would potentially be a danger for me if I were to run into the wrong person at the wrong time. So it was just, he was really worried and he was like, well, you know, you, you know, to be safe, like how to be safe out in the world. Right. And I was like, okay, sure. Yes, I I do. And that was kind of the extent of his concerns. So it was very pragmatic and very loving. Like I, I still give them quite a lot of props for the way that they went about doing that. And I think a lot of that kind of has to do with, you know, if you, you know, abscond from a country and you've gone through really traumatic things together, there are going to be priority shifts and everything is going to remain within the realm of the practical with my parents. God, thank you so much for sharing that story. It's so awesome to hear it from you and just so fascinating because everyone's experience is different. And um, mm-hmm. I'm so happy for you, actually, now that you have like an awesome uh, home and family of your own with your partner, Jay, and your your chick, your chicken children. <laughs> um did this scenario ever cross your mind as as a youngster, like your life scenario now? Because it, it seems really worked out. Yeah, no, it's very idyllic, and I didn't really think that this was going to happen for me as a you know, as a, I, like I couldn't you know. I think a part of the thing about like if you're growing up as a queer person and you're growing up like as an immigrant, you don't really have a conception of what your life is going to look like in the future because there's no precedent. You just got here, and also like if you're you know if you're a, a gay person, a queer person growing up in the '90s, like you don't have a lot of elders because a lot of them died during the AIDS right. epidemic. Like a whole generation is just gone, and so a lot of 
the things that, you know, we picked up, like we had to seek out and we had to learn. And so it's just a very, like, I had no conception of what my future was going to look like. So this was all, this is all very, very fortunate. I'm incredibly lucky just as a person. Wow. Such a great story. Thank you for sharing that. (laughs) Okay. So we talked about this long, what, seven or eight years of hustle between getting out of school and, um, pitching your work around to eventually get this book. And I'm curious to know about what the life of an artist, artist, like a visual artist is like during those years Mm -hmm. where you did have to hustle and um, there's not really like a nine to five for visual artists. No, I mean, I had a nine to five job for many, many years. So I worked at a nonprofit organization for about five years. It provided services for um, families with autistic children and children with developmental disabilities. And so it was like a like it was a desk job and I worked in the office portion of it. And it was not my ideal situation because I believed in the work and I thought it was really important. And I met a lot of really wonderful people. But it was a job where uh, I was working about an hour away from where I lived with my parents you know, it snows here in Minnesota. And so an hour long drive turns into three hours if snow hits the ground. Um, and so I did this for like, for a long time where I had this kind of just untenable commute. Uh, and so my work day was essentially 12 hours, even though it was like just a regular eight hour day. And then I would have to commute home yeah. and then I would do my comic work. And so I ended up working somewhere between like 60 to 75 hours a week to keep up with like my day job and to do art stuff on the side. And I had never considered that it was going to be like a real job job. It was just something that I did to unwind and it challenged me and it, you know, felt really fulfilling. But after a while that, that was not a, it was not good. I (laughs) wore myself down um, pretty fast after five years of that schedule. And so getting a, getting a book deal was (laughs) life-changing. That's so great. Like, what were some of the the super hard times during that period? It was difficult because I was trying my very best to kind of do everything that I felt like I really wanted to do. But that also meant that I had to deprioritize a lot of the relationships that I was developing. Yeah. And I kind of fell out of touch with a lot of my friends. Like, it was just a really difficult time um, as a person who, like, has always been very overcommitted all the way through like like you know ever since high school and college i would just be doing a million different things and suddenly all of my time is actually occupied and i realized that i couldn't keep up with it i I burned out really hard i guess that's a big learning for you but is there anything that you would kind of recommend for people who are busting their ass right now to not only like pay rent and, and and be a person in society but also to like pursue whatever they're passionate about and whatever talent they have Oh, I don't think you're going to like my response, but so I'm trying to be very pragmatic about it here. I was only able to do this like 60 to 75 hour work week because my parents were like, we know that you're working really hard. You don't need to like, like I contributed money to the household, but they were like, you don't have to pay anything that looks like rent. Just like help us with groceries every once in a while. And so I had a lot of monetary support from my parents in that I didn't have to pay rent and I saved a lot of time because all of the like household chores were things that we all shared and we all did. And so I didn't have to, like, there were a lot of things that I just didn't have to worry about on a practical level. And I think that if you're an artist and you're struggling, sometimes you do have to make sacrifices to the effect of like, maybe this is not a tenable thing. I don't think it's 
realistic to expect everyone to, you know, be able to work that many hours and then just be able to achieve all of their dreams is just not possible for a lot of people. And I don't want people to get it in their heads that, you know, this is a thing that everyone can magically achieve because, you know, times are so strange and different now and suddenly things are just not terribly affordable and it's difficult to do things kind of just on your own if it's not something that's immediately marketable. You know, I hope people understand that if it's not something that they're able to maintain, like it's it's not worth the sacrifice of like your your literal life, you know? Like you, you have to take care of yourself first. Wow, man, that is like straight from the heart advice. Thank you. <laughs> That's yeah, awesome. it's, I mean, it's hard because I mean, I talk to a lot of young artists who are like, well, how do you do this? And I'm like, well, I had a lot of help and, you know, and not a lot of people have the resources that I did in, you know, having supportive parents who are like immigrants. Like that's oftentimes really rare. And they're also, you know, pretty like financially very stable. And so they were able to help me out through my, you know, my tough times. Yeah, I guess my advice for parents would be like, just support your kid it's happiness because <laughs> yeah. like, I'm so glad my mom has always been super supportive of me uh, pursuing my creative work you know there's there wasn't any point where I felt like okay I'm in danger of being rejected by my family for pursuing this stuff and that just made so much of a difference for me just having that support even if it was just like a psychological mental support mm-hmm. yeah it's so cool yeah it makes a huge difference so something that I find really inspiring about your work, especially in The Magic Fish, is it feels like you. It feels so true to your core beliefs and your past background and your current interests. Mm-hmm. And yet it's captivating, obviously, to a bunch of people because you've been getting such great feedback about it. And yeah. I, I, I was wondering if you have a hot tip for me as I create work or any of my viewers or our viewers here that helps them stay true to themselves and express everything that's within them, but also kind of balance it with being digestible for other people. I think my advice for that would just be to figure out your own way and find out what you like to do. I think a lot of the reason why I do the work that I do is because I like the way it feels to draw a line next to another line the way that I do. Like it's very tactile. And so finding ways to do things that feel enriching to you from moment to moment is really, really great. Um, I'm someone who is very lucky to have had a lot of the opportunities that I've been afforded so far, and I've been very lucky to be able to make this book. And so one of the things that I've been able to do is that I had never, because I had never had any designs on this for most of my career, yeah, I was able to make work that primarily spoke to my own personal interests. And so my situation is a sort of, if you build it, they will come kind of story. And I think that if you just make work that you're genuinely very passionate about and you find people who are also passionate about the same thing, who share a lot of your um, interests or values, you, you'll you be able to kind of build a, a network and a community instead of thinking about it as an audience. Thinking about things that an audience will consume or what is saleable is not something that I've ever been able to do with any kind of effectiveness. And I, I kind of personally consider it to be not my job. There are people out there who, you know, if you're working with a publisher, they'll, you know, they'll figure out like what your audience is and who your work is appropriate for. But if you are making your work, your work has to be appropriate for you. First and foremost, you are your first audience and you are going to be your best and worst critic for the rest of your life. And nobody's going to have that relationship with your work but you. So make work for yourself first. 
Wise words, my brother. <laughs> <laughs> so now that you're working on some new books of yours, and um, you know you're using the success of this book to propel your next works, what's one thing personally or professionally that you're trying to develop? Uh, <laughs> so I think um, working uh, with a major publisher is a little bit of a different experience for me because I have to develop skills that I didn't realize that I needed. And so I was like, okay, oh. so I'm a good storyteller. I can draw and I can write. Um, and I thought that was everything that you needed to do. But apparently you also, <laughs> especially now, you have to be pretty good at like um, talking about yourself and your work. And you have to be articulate and you have to learn how to edit a video every once in a while. And you have to learn <laughs> how to, you know be not obnoxious on the internet like there's a lot of like small things that kind of becomes a part of the engine of your professionalism on the internet that i didn't realize that i needed until like just now and so i had to you know make some adjustments and change some behaviors and some habits so yeah it's, it's, wow. it's a slightly different job than i imagined it would be wow that's so cool that's really great uh so, Trung, your book is beautiful. I hope everybody goes and picks it up. Thank you so much for like just sharing this conversation with me and your story with everyone watching. And um, I can't recommend uh, The Magic Fish enough. <laughs> okay, guys, so you can find Trung at trungles.com. His new book is called The Magic Fish. It's published by Random House Graphic. And uh, I was wondering if you had anything else to share with the audience before the end of the conversation. Uh... Stay safe. Stay inside. Wear a mask. <laughs> Stay apart from people. <laughs> yeah, totally. We're still in the heat of this pandemic at the craziest time right now. And uh, these conversations mean so much to me because we get to learn about each other and interface in this like really nice way. And um, so appreciate your time. Don't hang up. I'm going to give a little outro and then I'll come back and say a proper farewell to you. All right. Okay. Thank you, Trung. You guys, that was such an awesome conversation, and I'm so happy that we got to share that with you. Also, thank you so much for supporting this show and sending me feedback and leaving me comments and stuff. I really appreciate that. If you can financially support me in creating all this content, you can do so at coffeewithbao.com. There's a big blue button that says support, and I super appreciate everybody who hits me up uh, for any reason, actually. And I think that's it. Have a safe weekend and you know it's pandemic city right now so please stay safe and we'll see you next time on coffee with bao you want to see our beautiful mugs while we chat coffee with bao is also available in video just search for it on youtube and hit the subscribe button